0: This week is week eight. Uh, and so if you missed any of the other ones, of uh, the other weeks of this series, if you're our guest today tuning in for the first time or you just missed a few of them, uh, I'm at a point in the series where I'm not, I'm, I, it takes too much time to recap every week that I did. So if you missed any of them, go online, our website, app, any one of those podcasts, YouTube, and I want to encourage you to, to catch up because they do kind of build on each other. So I will just recap a few weeks ago. Uh, we saw that Jesus Christ is our perfect high priest. Then last week we saw that Jesus Christ has a superior priesthood than any of the other priests in the old testament and remember just a little backdrop if you missed or hadn't been here the writer of hebrews is writing this at this time to new uh Jewish Christians—they were Hebrew Christians that just got saved, but they were still in, in, in uh, surrounded with Judaism. The temple was still in operation, with priests still offering sacrifices. We'll see that again. I'll mention it again. So that's why he's writing and having to—he's trying to convince them that even though we can't see Jesus, he's our superior, perfect high priest, and there's a there's a priesthood that he comes from in the order of Melchizedek, and that's what I talked about last week. So catch up if, if you hadn't. But these two truths of these last couple of weeks shows that Jesus ministers on the basis of a better covenant. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. The superior covenant is the theme of week eight. So the writer presents evidence for the superiority of this new covenant that we're in in three different ways. And we'll look at that today from chapter eight. Number one, its minister is a superior high priest. Now, let's read it because this is like a recap, but the, 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 the author of this book is recapping. So I'm just going line by line through this book, Hebrews 8. Verses 1 and 2, by the way, he does that, I do this, and how many of you parents know you can't just tell your kids something one time and they get it, right? Can I get a better amen than that? Amen? So, hey, but you know what? We're... We're sons and daughters of, of the most high God, so we need a lot of reminders too, right? And so that's what the author is doing here. Hebrews 8, 1 and 2, because he says this. Here's the main point. He's wrapping this thing up. He's emphasizing. Here's the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you've done. Thank you that you are our perfect high priest, our Lord Jesus, and that you are superior to any and all. Holy Spirit, we ask that you help us today. Help me as I preach. Help us all as we receive it, even in these deep doctrinal truths to apply to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned before again, we talked about this in detail, so I won't spend too much time on this point today. Uh, and it may seem, like I said, the writer's repeating himself, but chapter 8 starts with him concluding this subject about Jesus' high priesthood. Uh, a superior priest could never minister on the base of an inferior covenant. So look at it this way. Even the most gifted and talented and smartest lawyer would not be able uh, to do much with the will that he's trying to validate if the will was inadequate. He could only enforce or, or, or implement a will based on, you know, how good the will was laid out. So as the writer presents the main and the climax of this discussion, he lays out several facts to prove that Jesus is the superior high priest. First, Christ's moral adequacy, right? We know that. Verse 1, we have his high priest. The fact that Jesus is morally perfect and yet identified with us in our needs and temptations makes him superior than any other priest, past or present. And I'll say it again, even pastor, right? See, I can relate to you, but what you go through in some things, but I'm far from perfect. Amen? Come on, my wife, she's saying a loud amen inside right now. Amen? But Jesus, on the other hand, he was perfect. But since he was also human, he could relate to us. That's what makes him our perfect high priest. Next, Christ finished work on the cross. Verse 1, we have a high priest who sat down, this is important, at the place of honor. Now, you might you need to know this, and I love this, and you, you might want to write it down. Today our Lord is seated because his work is completed. Today he is seated because his work is completed. Listen, you, I don't know if you knew this, but there was no chairs in the Old Testament tabernacle. All the furniture, there was no chairs in there. And that shows there was no chairs because they it, it, they had to continuously repeat those offerings and those sacrifices year in and year out because they knew it never provided finished salvation. What it? Jesus say in John 1930 when he was hanging on the cross right before he died? It is finished. See, the the priests didn't have chairs because their job was never done. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished, right? And now he's seated because his work is completed. Also, we see Christ's enthronement, right? Verse 1, Jesus Christ is not just seated. It is where he is seated that adds glory to him and his work. He's seated on the throne uh at the right hand of the father at the throne of God. This enthronement was the fulfillment of the father's promise to the son that we read in Psalm 110 verse one. A lot of you familiar with the scripture. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. Amen it was it was a prophetic psalm pointing to Jesus being seated at the place of honor, and then lastly, Christ's supreme exaltation. Verse two says that he is in the heavens. remember when he when he was resurrected and then ascended, he passed through the heavens and ended up in what's called the third heavens. We know that's what Paul said. You remember he had a vision, and he was caught up to the third heaven. that's where God dwells, and that's where Jesus is now he's he exalted to the highest place possible the presence of a superior high priest in heaven demands a superior covenant if he is to minister effectively to his people. Amen? So first, we know superior covenant because there's a superior priest. Number two, it's ministered in a superior place, right? We just hit on that, but let's continue to read the verses here, Hebrews 8, 3 through 5. And since our I'm sorry, and since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices, our high priest priest must make an offering too. If he were on earth, he would not even be a priest since there already are priests who offer the gifts required by the law. This is the key part I want you to hone in on. They serve in a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning, be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the earth. In these verses, the writer expanded on the marvelous truth that Jesus Christ today ministers in a heavenly sanctuary. See, again, the reason for this discussion, discussion that he's writing and emphasizing and repeating is because there was a real temple with real priests still offering real sacrifices and offerings. So he's having to continue to remind him to, to, to that these are only types of shadows and just something uh, pointing to what's to come. And now he's like, we're here. Jesus Christ, even though we can't see him, is in heaven he is ministering. It would have been easy for them to go back to that way. So after all, how would they know that Jesus Christ is ministering in the sanctuary? Has anyone actually seen him doing this? No, nobody back then and none of us right now can peel back heaven and look and see Jesus minister. So they had good questions, but the writer had good answers. There's first the logical answer we know because he is a high priest who serves others. Each high priest was appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, Jesus Christ must offer the same is what he said. But these sacrifices can't just be offered anywhere. They had to be offered specifically where God said they would be appointed place at the time was the tabernacle. So if Jesus Christ is our high priest and he is who offers a sacrifice in heaven. The tabernacle obviously is in heaven. So don't think also that Jesus is offering sacrifices in heaven that correspond with Old Testament sacrifices. The phrase make an offering is in the Greek tense that implied makes an offering once and for all. It goes back to that offering on the cross was it. He's not making more offerings and sacrifices in heaven. What this is, is implying is he sacrificed himself once and for all, and now he's a living sacrifice in the tabernacle in heaven. Amen? Next is the uh, genealogical answer found in verse 4. We have already gone over that uh, in in his human ancestry, he couldn't be a priest on earth because he comes from the line of Judah. That's the priestly line. I mean the kingly line, I'm sorry, the kingly line David King David came from the line of the tribe of Judah, so did Jesus, he's our king of kings, amen, but he's also our our priest, so he couldn't be a priest on earth, so obviously it points to him being a priest in heaven, right, in the order of Melchizedek, which governs his ministry now, and that's what we talked about last week in detail. That's why if you missed last week, you need to go check that out. Jesus' earthly birth from the line of the tribe of Judah uh would not permit him to be an earthly priest again. So he, 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 he's a priest in heaven. And then lastly, the, the, uh, the typology answer in verse five. And I want to read this because this is really where we, we recap a lot of this, but this is something that's new. We need to focus in on Hebrews eight, five. They serve in a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. This is cool. I think too, I just, This just hit me. He didn't give him instruction. He actually gave him a warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern that I've shown you on the mountain. This word pattern here in this verse is the Greek word typos, from which we get the English word type. This was a type, right? A type is an Old Testament picture of a New Testament truth. Paul uses the same word uh, in Corinthians as well when he says that everything that we read about the, the, the Old Testament stories were types and shadows. He uses the same Greek word typos, Old Testament pictures, real life accounts to help us and it implements New Testament truth. In verse five, this quote was from actually from Exodus 35 and 40, where it refers to the heavenly A tabernacle. Moses saw this pattern. God gave it to him on the mountain, and he duplicated its essentials in the earthly tabernacle. The true tabernacle is in heaven, so this one was just imitations and copies of the true one. Now again, this whole New Testament, I'm sorry, Old Testament system is what it says here is but shadows. The Bible says in Hebrews 10.1 that the law was but shadows for things to come. The truth and the light that shines is Jesus Christ. So I had a young man last week ask me about that, ask me about some, why do we still uh, preach the law and talk about the law if, if it doesn't apply to us anymore? Because it shows all of these are types and shadows. We can still learn from the Old Testament. We can still learn from the law. Like I said last week, even though we're not bound and under the law, we're free from the law, doesn't mean that we're lawless. Doesn't mean that we can live a life of sin. You still shouldn't murder. You still shouldn't commit adultery. You still shouldn't steal and lie, right? Right, amen? So just because we're free from the law doesn't mean that we're lawless. But you got to remember, that's why we still read Old Testament. But watch, check this out. This is awesome. So here's the picture, the type uh, that he gives him. Build the tabernacle this way. A picture of heaven. Then later in the book of Revelation, John's starting to get revelation of heaven. And it peels back. God peels back uh, the heavens for him. And what does he find? Well, in the book of Revelation, he describes a heavenly tabernacle. We read in the book of Revelation that there's a temple of God. It says in Revelation eleven nineteen. 19. Of course, there's no actual building in the eternal state of heaven because the entire city of God will be a temple. It says that in Revelations 21, 22. Then there's the brazen altar in Revelation 6, as well as the altar of incense in Revelation 8, the sea of glass in Revelation 4, 6. This reminds us of the laver. The seven lamps of fire in Revelations 4, 5 suggests the seven branch. Lamp stand in the tabernacle. So isn't that awesome? You got the Old Testament. Moses uh, gets the picture from God. Hebrews is talking about there's a tabernacle. Then later, John, the book of Revelation, he sees it in heaven. Amen? So these are all types and shadows. So if you're wondering, like, well, man, why do we still read the Old Testament and the law? Because it's everything is, is a type, and it's a shadow. And it points ultimately, like this whole book and this whole verse, to Jesus Christ. My goal and my prayer and my hope for you is that week in and week out after this uh, uh, these sermons and this series that you will see the Lord in a greater way. As he is, we know, Jesus Christ ministering in the original sanctuary and he's ministering in a better place. So the writer was asking these Hebrew Christians, why fellowship with the priests who are serving in this copy sanctuary, which was still there, when you can fellowship with Christ in the true heavenly sanctuary? So I'm going to say it this way, according to this conversation I had last week as well, because this person was telling me that he got a hold of some videos online and that some Christians, and you might have heard or seen this before, some Christians are still saying that even though we're born again Christians, we shouldn't eat certain foods or we should worship the Lord only on certain days. Well, that's, that's, that's New Testament believers trying to put us back under the law. And just as what they was doing, they were still trying to go back under the law, although they were free in Christ. And this is an illustration that might help you if you think that way, if people try to get you caught up uh, on eating certain foods, which Jesus himself, when he mentioned uh, that food just passes through the body, the Bible says in every translation in the Gospels, by saying this, he declared all foods good to eat. By the way, Paul later said as well, Paul said that, that any food is good and, and to eat as long as you thank God for it and you bless it, right? So if you try to be a born-again Christian and still follow the law, it's almost like you're trying to live on the blueprint of a house instead of living in the house itself. Amen? So be, we, we, we have the shadows, the type, the Old Testament love it, but don't go back into that. Don't try to get caught back up into the ruse about food and about the certain days and all that. People say like what certain day is the sad, the holy day? Hey, listen, every day's a holy day. Every day's a holy day. Whether you do it on Saturday, Sunday, some people work. I, I I say this when people get caught up and I say, Man, I know people that work on the weekends. Their Sabbath's on Wednesday. They come to church on Wednesday. You think they know any day's a holy day, right? We're the temple of the living God now. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Every day should be holy. Every day is a day of worship. Every day could be a day of church, right? And so I'm just, just as he was encouraging them because they still saw the temple of the priests, we can still listen. Even as Protestant, non-denominational, spirit-filled Christians, we could be religious sometimes. And so we got to be careful that we're not getting caught up in the rules and regulations. And again, just because we're free from the law don't make us lawless. We still want to live. You see, the freedom in Christ gives us the freedom and empowers us to live in the will of the Lord, in holiness and in purity. Amen? So now the writer has given us two different kinds of evidence for the superiority of this new covenant. It's, again, greater higher, superior high priest, a superior place in heaven. And then now he devotes the remainder of this section, of this, uh, this chapter, to the third piece of evidence, which is found uh, in Hebrews 8, 6 through uh, 13. And i just give it to you. Number three is it's founded on better promises. He wraps up this whole chapter. It's founded on better promises. Let's read it. Hebrews 8, 6 through 13. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God. Here it is, based on better promises. If the first covenant had been flawless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant would not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. But they did not remain faithful to my covenant. So I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is what the new, co- but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people, and they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, "You should know the Lord." For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. Come on, that's some good news in there, y'all. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is out of date and will soon disappear. See, in the old covenant, Moses mediated between the old covenant and God, right? God gave him the laws, the Ten Commandments. God showed him the the uh, pattern of the tabernacle. He was the mediator, which means a go-between, right? We know that today that Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. Which, by the way, 1 Timothy two five says, "There's only one mediator." between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, right? So Christ's ministry as the mediator is more excellent than the Old Testament priest because it's based on a better covenant, and this covenant, again, is founded on better promises. Now, this better covenant that's referred to in these verses in this paragraph was first announced and prophesied by Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31. And the promise was given in a prophecy that assured the Jews a future restoration. A little bit of history here. Jeremiah ministered during the closing years of the nation's history before Judah went into Babylonian captivity. At a time when the nation's future seemed completely destroyed, God gave this promise, restoration uh, of, of restoration and blessing. Right. So that's where the original uh, uh, prophecy and text came from. But let's move into the, the New Testament and the New Covenant now. What did Jesus say at what's known as the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper? He says when he takes the cup of wine, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now he says that in the Gospels, but the Apostle Paul also quotes it in 1 Corinthians, which we read last week. If you were here, we took communion and I quoted and I read from 1 Corinthians 11 where he says, this is cup is the new covenant. You remember established and ratified with my blood, right? So in verse 6, the writer of Hebrews states clearly that Jesus Christ is the mediator of this covenant. And again, in chapters 9 and chapters 12, he repeats it. So before we go any further, what's the relationship between the new covenant promise to Israel and and how do we experience it today? How can God both promise these blessings to the Jews and then turn around and give them to the church? Because remember, the original prophecy was for, for, for Israel, but now we got both Paul and the writer of Hebrews applying it to the New Testament church. Well, like a few things I've dealt with in Hebrews, there's a lot of different trains of thoughts. I'm not going to get into all that. But one being, some people, even some Christians, believe in what's called a dual covenant. And and I don't believe that at all, and this points to that. Some people believe that God still has the old covenant with with the Jews and then the new covenants for the rest of us, what's known as Gentiles. But I think Hebrews made it very clear. It says the old one is obsolete. Absolute means it's gone. It's it's, it's, it's been gone, right? It's obsolete. It no longer exists, right? Here's the answer. The church today is made up of both born-again Jews and Gentiles who are one in the body of Christ. All who are in Christ share in the new covenant which was purchased by Jesus on the cross. So today, the blessings of the new covenant are applied to individuals it's no longer applied just to Israel or just to right Israel and the Gentiles will both take part as we trust in Christ. You remember this all points to Jesus. So people get caught up. Well, it must be due covenant. That was that was Israel. We can't apply it to us. No, it's this is the new covenant. So it means if you're in Christ, you can be a Jew, a Gentile from Africa or Karen Crow, and you receive the blessings of the new covenant if you're in Christ. Amen. So that's how those two come together. Both covenants, well, let me say this. Before we move forward, and we're going to look at the promises before we close, but before we look at those, we should never think also that the existence of the new covenant means that the old covenant by was any means wrong. Both covenants were given by God. Both covenants were given for people's good. And both covenants had blessings attached to them. God's never made a mistake and never will, right? Right? What does Hebrew 8 8 say? Let's read it again. When God found fault with the people, right? This was a shadow, and it, it it was foreshadowing Jesus. At the same time, though, God didn't break it on his end. It was the people, right? When he found fault with the people, the Lord and his covenants are flawless. The flaws and faults were with the people, right? So don't ever think like, well, oh man, God messed up. He made a mistake. He must have not put the right clauses in it. No, no, no. Hebrews 8, 8 makes it clear. It was on the people's end, amen? We'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. So let's look at these better promises as we conclude today that belong to this new covenant. First of all, the promise of God's grace, amen? Hebrews 8, 9, let's read it again. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. See, the emphasis in this new covenant is on God's I will. The right of Hebrews affirms God's I will on behalf of those who trust in Jesus. Let's read them again in verse 10. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and heart. I will write it on their hearts I will be their God, and they will be my people. Look at that. I will four times, it's stated in this one verse, and six times between the verses of 8 and 12. I said this a couple weeks ago. That shows God saying, I will. He established it. He started it. He's carrying it out, he's going to make sure it happens. He will. It doesn't fall on us. The burden's not on us, right? He will, right? See, and speaking of God's grace, a promise of God's grace, he showed his grace to Israel. His grace to Israel. God led Israel out of Egypt the way a father would lead their children out of harm, out of harm's way to try to help them. See, God gave Israel his holy law for their good to separate them from pagan nations and to protect them from sinful practices. But again, the nation of Israel failed. God did not find fault with his covenant, but with his people. The problem was not with the law. The problem was with sinful nature. And before we're too hard, because even as a pastor who's been preaching for a long time, I could be hard on the people in the Bible, especially the Old Testament. So before we are too hard on these people in the Old Testament law, we still do the same thing today. The problem's not with the Bible. People try to find fault with the Bible and say the Bible contradicts itself. No, the Bible, the problem's not with the Bible. It's with sinful nature. The fault is still with the people, right? And so I just want to encourage you with that, is, is that, but, but God is gracious. I love this. Hebrews 6, 19 says that the law made nothing perfect because it could not change a human heart. We know that. Only God's grace can change our heart. The new covenant is fueled by God's grace. No sinner can become a part of this new covenant without trusting in the Lord Jesus, without faith in the Lord Jesus. And what does the Bible say? We're saved by grace. Through faith, right, in our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the promise of grace. Next is the promise of transformation. In verse 10, the law of Moses could declare God's holy standard, but it could never provide the power needed for obedience. Parents, let me ask you again. You can give your kids a standard and a list of chores, but obedience is usually not the first thing that just comes out of them, right? That list doesn't empower them to be obedient. Can I get a better amen, parents? Usually that rod of correction is a motivation for some obedience. Amen? Yeah. Or it can be. Sinful people need a new heart and a new dispensation within them. And this is exactly what the new covenant provides. When a sinner trusts Christ and receives a divine nature, that divine nature creates a desire to love and obey the Lord. We don't obey because we have to. We get to now because now we're in Christ. We're in this new covenant. Amen? By nature, sinful people are hateful and disobedient. Have you noticed that? That's just nature. But the new nature that God gives us as believers uh, gives us both the desire and the dynamic to live a godly life. See, the law was external. It was written on tablets of stone, right? We know Moses read them, wrote them on the Ten Commandments. But the new covenant makes it possible for God's word to be written in our hearts and in our minds. God's grace makes an internal transformation possible and makes a surrendered believer more and more like Jesus. And now that's why if you've noticed I've even changed my terminology, those of you that are members here every Sunday when I invite people to get saved. Now I don't I don't just say like, hey, do you want to accept Christ? I, I I purposely use that word, do you want to surrender your life to Christ? Because you can accept the free gift of salvation and not be surrendered. See, a surrendered believer. When you surrendered to the, to the Holy Spirit and to his word, that's where the power of transformation comes in. And he begins to transform you more and more like Jesus. So the next promise is the promise of transformation. Then the promise of forgiveness for all. Let's read Hebrews 8, 11 and 12 again. And they did not, and they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. I want you to hone in on that. We'll get to that in a minute. See, there's no forgiveness of sin under the law because that's not what the law was given for. If you remembered, last year I did a series on the Ten Commandments, and I used that illustration. I had a mirror, and I took some of my wife's uh, makeup, her base, to kind of act like dirt. And I showed you just with an illustration, the mirror, like the law showed me that I had something on my face, but then I tried to clean it off with the mirror and it didn't work, right? I had to take some baby wipes or something and, and clean them off. So the law's intention never was to forgive sin. It was to show us our sin. The law could not promise forgiveness to Israel, let alone all mankind, right? It's only through the sacrifice of Jesus that this forgiveness is possible. See, the Old Testament sacrifices brought a remembrance of sins, not a remission of sins. Only the blood of Jesus brings the remission of sins. Now, Hebrews 8, 11, you might think, man, what does it mean right there? You don't have to teach one another. It was quoted from Jeremiah 31, 34, and it refers to the day when Israel shall be reunited with Judah and shall rejoice in the promised kingdom of the Messiah. This is speaking of the end. This is speaking of the last days when everybody will be saved. That's what he's saying. You won't need to teach one another anymore because he said from the least to the greatest will know me. That's when this whole thing's wrapped up. That's what it's prophesying towards. When we're all saved and we all know the Lord, there won't be no need of teaching one another. Amen? And that's what it's referring to. However, until that day, it's both our privilege and our responsibility to share the gospel message to this lost world around us. Just as Helping Hands, the group went out yesterday to feed the homeless and share the gospel. Just as we do, I mean, this week we did it. Last night, Serve Week, every day of your life, we have that responsibility. Now. I want to want to hone in on this. What does it mean that God will never remember our sins in verse twelve? It doesn't. That doesn't mean He forgets. It means that He doesn't hold it against us. He deals with us on the basis of grace and mercy, not law and merit. Because going back, as I was speaking, uh, and and some people think, you know, like, well, we still got to eat certain foods and do certain things uh, to be close to God. Be careful, because if you want to live under the law, you'll be judged according to the law. So i rather live under grace, and whenever I do mess up and need help and truly repent, you know what? There's mercy and grace there, right? See, once a sin is forgiven, it is never brought up before us again. The matter is settled eternally. Let me pause here and say and it, 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 the Lord dropped it in me in the first service. That may be one thing for some of you in all this doctrinal stuff before you leave here today. You're a born-again believer. And yes, we've all still sinned. That's why First John says we confess our sin, his faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from unrighteousness. The Bible makes it clear. That term literally means he doesn't hold us against us. He doesn't hold our sin against us. He doesn't bring it back up. So if you're a born-again believer in here or watching online and you continue to have sin come back up that you've repented for, you're either beating yourself up or the enemy's beating you up, and you need to be free from that today. You need to leave, you should not leave this building again today still getting condemned. The Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he doesn't condemn us. He forgets it. He doesn't hold it against us anymore. Now, I've heard people say, how do we apply this? First, you need to be free. Secondly, how we forgive people. I've heard people say, well, I can forgive, but I can never forget. Well, technically, you can't never forget from your memory, but according to Scripture, And this term, you can forget by when you truly forgive, not holding it against that person. Not constantly bringing it up. We may remember what others have done, but we can treat them as though they've never did it. How is this possible? It's only possible through the cross where God treated his son the way he did it. As though he did it, should I say, and he never did. Are y'all following me? Because Jesus died, he punished Jesus as though he had committed sins that he never has, and he forgave us. So when people harm us, we can forgive them as though they've never did it. Are y'all following me? I hope I'm making myself clear on that. And it only comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. See, our forgiveness, our experience of forgiveness makes it possible to forgive others. And the last one is the promise of eternal salvation. Verse 13, the old covenant was still being governed, was still governing the nation of Israel at that time. When this epistle was written, again, the temple was still standing. The priests were offering their sacrifices. So devout Jews probably thought to their Christian friends "Man, that they were foolish for, for, for abandoning such a solid religion for a faith that seemed intangible. They couldn't see Jesus. They couldn't touch him. They could see the temple. They can go in. They could see the priests offering sacrifices. What the unbelieving Jews didn't realize, that their solid religion had grown old, and like it says there in verse 13, was about to vanish. And physically it did because we know in 70 A.D. the city of Jerusalem and the temple was totally destroyed by the Romans. And to this day, Jewish people don't have a temple or a priest to offer sacrifices to. And I think that was part of, 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 of I know it was God allowing, I believe it was God allowing that, as Brother Glenn said a couple weeks ago, God allowing that. Why? Because it, it's still a hindrance, especially to Jewish people, to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe the Lord allowed the temple and the priest to get out of the way to maybe help as as not being a stumbling block because that's why Hebrews keeps diving into all of this stuff. But what about you and I? We never went, well, some of us went to different kind of, I guess, temples and churches and stuff and went, you know, our way of religion. But has anything been a stumbling block for you to keep you from knowing the Lord? See, the new covenant brings eternal blessing because Jesus is the author of eternal salvation and eternal redemption. Now, as we conclude, that word new, even in the word new, the new covenant, the Greek word new means new in quality, not new in time. It wasn't new because it was a new season. It's new in quality. It means it will never disappear and it will never be replaced. See, God has called us, church, to live in a covenant relationship with him. Just as he's called us to be in covenant with our spouses. And I know this is hard for the Western world, especially Americans, to understand covenant relationships. You know, I know that's true because over 50% of people, even Christians, get divorced in their marriages. And as a believer, as a believer, when you make a covenant with God and a covenant with life, what you're saying is, it's forever, baby. All right? We're going going the long haul with this because I made a covenant with you. It's the same with our relationship with the Lord. A covenant relationship with God that he's calling us to is a meaningful relationship in which we know God, we have his word written in our hearts, and we have our sins decisively forgiven by the sacrifice of Christ. Amen? Are you in this kind of relationship with God? Do you have a covenant relationship with him? You, you may come to church, you may watch online, you may even give some money, and all that's great. We need to do these things, read your Bible, even pray. A lot of people say they pray, but are you in covenant relationship with Him? Would you bow your head with me and close your eyes as we conclude? Just out of reverence for the Lord, respect for others. You know, I can't help but think, as Miss Wendy was in this first service and Brother Jim was laying right here in front of the stage yesterday, His shell was, he's in glory now. And man, it's so much easier as a pastor to to, to do services, funerals, and when, when we know it's believers. Those, that brother got saved in 1984 and got connected shortly thereafter here with Brother Francis and Miss Babs. Stayed faithful, serving the Lord all those years. It was so nice. It was a celebration. Brother Mike was helping with the music. They did a great job. Right, Brother Mike? And we celebrated his home going because we knew where he was going. There was no doubt Brother Jim was saved. But what about you? Would, if you don't mind, with every head bowed, every eye closed, what about you? We talked about the end, right? That, 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 that scripture was talking about the end. I know we're living in the last days. But what if it's, it was your last day today? What if that was your funeral service that we were doing here yesterday? Would we be able to stand up here and talk about how you in the glory of Jesus? Or would you be spending eternity separated from the Lord? The Bible says we've all sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. And the wages of sin is death. That word death is an eternal death because the next line says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through great Christ Jesus, our great high priest who instilled a great superior new covenant. If you say, Brandon, I'm not sure, man, where I would be, if I'd be with Brother Jim and Brother Francis and all the saints before me, I'm not sure, man. But I want to be sure before I leave here today. I want to be born again. If that's you, just slip up your hands. Say, Brandon, that's me. That's me." I see your hands over here. Even if you're watching online at L.P.C.C., come on. I can't see your hand, but the Lord can. Anybody else? Lift up your hands to the Lord and say, "Brandon, I, I want to pray. I need to get born again today." Or maybe you're a prodigal son or daughter, and you said, "Man, I-, I used to serve the Lord, but I've walked away." And maybe you said, "Man, I need to resurrender my life to the Lord. Not recommit. I need to resurrender." That's you. Just slip up your hand over here, sir. I see your hand. More hands going up. Amen. Come on, let's pray together in faith as a body of Christ. Those of you that raise your hand in the rest, let's pray with them. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying in my place. Lord, I know that I've sinned and I repent of my sin. I turn to you and I surrender my life to you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the new covenant that I am entering into with you today. Holy Spirit, give me the grace and the strength to live a life that glorifies Jesus all the days of my life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Come on, let's celebrate and rejoice with these today. Amen. Congratulations, brothers and sisters. Fill out If you made that decision, fill out a connection card in the chair in front of you. Turn it into the info center. We have a Bible. We'd love to meet you. Hey, would you stand up with me? Can I get the pastors and the altar team to come up? I I want to do this before we leave, and then I'll release your for some of you. I'm not going to hold you here. But as we close, I'm really just, I felt the first service in this service by the Spirit of the Lord that there's some people in here, you are getting condemned by either your own thoughts, by people, or or, or by the enemy himself. that keeps trying to bring up sin in your life. And Jesus said, I will never remember your sins anymore. I will not hold them against you. So as we close right now, I want you, if that's you and you say, man, that's me and I've been struggling and I need prayer, why don't you just come up and we want to pray with you before you leave today. Can can we do that? Come on, begin to make your way to, your, to the altar as we as we close in prayer right now. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you. Thank you for the new and superior covenant that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, uh, for who you are, what you've done and what you're doing. Thank you for your once and for all sacrifice on the cross for our sins. Lord, I pray, my God, that if there's anyone in here that is truly born again and has repented of sin and they're still getting bombarded and beaten up by their sins, that you would break it today. My God, that you would break that condemnation for there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So I pray, Father, that you would help them and that you would set them free today from this condemnation. May we live in the freedom and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray you bless these as they go today and all that they do in this weekend as they may have time off with their families, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Well, God bless you. Happy 4th of July. I pray you enjoy any time you may have off. If you need prayer for anything specifically besides this, come on up. We'll be glad to pray with you. Have an awesome day. Love you guys.